through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI Radio listener. Young Joey Watson here. Yes, Out of the Box is our little show. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get the right pleasure of sitting down with one person and rolling through the records from their life and some of the stories around those records. Today, Jane Caro. Jane is best known for her work as a writer and a public commentator, but it all started in the no-rules man's world of Australian advertising in the 1970s. Now, with over eight books behind her, including a memoir and a fiction series, she has become synonymous with her advocacy around education, reform and feminism. Jane Caro, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> education, as I just mentioned, has, has somewhat come to def- define your, your public life. Mm. What was your experience of education when you were at school? Look, I was so lucky because um, my family migrated here from the UK when I was almost six and I went into first class at French's Forest Public School. And in those days, most Australian kids just went to the local public primary school and then the local public secondary school. So I went to French's Forest Public. Then I was uh, fortunate enough to go into OC, Opportunity Class, um, uh, a Chatswood public school for a couple of years. And then I just went straight to Forest High, which was my local high school at the time. And I got the most fantastic education. Uh, were, you, were you one of the talented kids when you were little? I look not to so that anyone would notice. Um, I was a bookworm. I loved reading, and I had a, um, um, a very good vocabulary. But I was a dorky. I mean, I was tiny. I was really, really small. So that worked well for me in one way because when I I remember when I went to OC, so I was nearly ten. Uh, the teacher in the class thought I was going to kindergarten because I was so little. They thought I was five. And when my mother said, "No, no, she's coming into fifth class," they thought I was a child prodigy. No, I was just little. Um, so that it worked one well one way, but it also worked really badly because Australia was a very, and still is, you know, obsessed with sport. And I was hopeless at sport. I couldn't play sport. I would rather read a book than play any kind of game. Still would. and um, But that developed my vocabulary. So I just had a good vocabulary, used long words, and I, you know, found myself uh, as a kind of outsider because of that, because, you know, um, the kids didn't like it. So, I yes, I, I was good at English and reading and all that kind of thing. I was terrible at maths. Like, I, I, I did remedial maths in opportunity class. Well, that's not supposed to happen. Certainly wouldn't happen now. But then you were still allowed to be good at some things and bad at others. How did society treat small kids in, in the 50s and 60s? Is that, is, is that something that's changed? Uh, what was your experience of that? And I think particularly of the health system. Well, I was very lucky because my mother um, had a very good female doctor, Margaret Mills, her name was, and um they were worried because I wasn't growing. And so um, I had many tests. And Margaret Mills said to my mother, look, there's nothing wrong with her. Um, she's, she'd be the perfect size for her age if, she, if she'd been born 100 years ago. She's just like a bit of a throwback. Um, and I come from a very little family. We're all short. And um, so she said, I wouldn't bother to do anything about it. She'll be fine. And I was fortunate because other kids in my era, this would have been in the mid to late 60s, 
were given a hormone um, which was made from um, something to do with pigs, I think. And a lot of them went on to develop Creutz-Jakob syndrome, which is where you slowly disintegrate into dementia and die because the pigs had an infection. And they were given this hormone because of failure to grow. And so because I had a sensible mother and a sensible doctor, that didn't happen to me. So I was extremely fortunate. Um, My experience of the health system was quite good, but my experience generally of being a child in Australia in the 60s, because we came here in 63, was that... Children were regarded with suspicion. Um, we were thought of as, as being naughty at every opportunity. It was a very a disapproving, be seen and not heard, old-fashioned, uh, not very encouraging experience. Um, and because I was talkative and uppity, and I came from a family where our dinners, our dinner table was all about, you know, put your ideas forward and now fight for it, you know, and my father gave no quarter. It didn't matter whether you're the eldest or the youngest, or you were three or you were 16. You had to put forward your argument and you had to be able to back up your opinions. And we would have these very, you know, um, and he, but he also totally respected you um, as an equal, whether you were three or 16. So he would listen to you. So I expected to be listened to, but of course I went out into a world where children weren't listened to. And so when I put forward my points of view or I disagreed with something that was considered almost naughty, it was certainly considered, um, you know, as if I was uh, sort of laissez majesty or something like that. Did you already have a politics in the way that you do now? Did I? I I remember thinking that, you know, if you couldn't imagine it, that, that you couldn't, that suffering of other people was important and that if you had an imagination, how could you fail to be moved by other people's suffering because you could imagine that happening to you and therefore you needed to do something about it happening to others. My father had a view that if you saw things that were unjust, and my mother too, very, my mother was always a feminist, um, if you saw things that were unjust or unfair, you ought to say so. You you had an obligation. I mean, I had a very privileged background. We weren't particularly wealthy when I was a little kid, but my father was on an upward career trajectory and he ended up, um, you know, doing very well and money was not ever really an issue. So, and highly educated. Both my father and my grandfather were graduates of Cambridge University. So that kind of privilege, which is, um, that's the best kind of privilege because no one can take away that confidence. Um the intellectual confidence that comes with that more than it's more important than money. It's a bigger privilege than money. And um, so I have that privilege. And the view in my family was that you couldn't, you had privilege, therefore your responsibility was to use that privilege to share it, to spread it as much as you possibly could because that privilege gave you a sense of safety and a sense of confidence that other people who just hadn't been as lucky as you in the lottery of birth didn't have and so your job was to do the best you could to make sure that they got it. Sure. Well, for that, why don't we go to some music now, Mm. Jane? What do you want to play first up to your childhood (laughs) years? Well, I think the song I've always loved um, and my best friend at 
as a child, Julie Spilston and I used to sing this at the top of our voices, um, was um, by Nancy Sinatra. These boots were made for walking. And it, I really love it because it's a proto-feminist song. It's about, you know, saying to a guy who's done her wrong, you know, I'm going to walk all over you. I'm not going to sit here and take your shit. I'm going to I'm going to put my bloody big boots on and I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to kick you on the way out. And I, I, we love that song. I don't think we analysed the lyrics when we were nine or ten but I think there was something about that in your face you know not take not the usual kind of girls love song of that time was he done me wrong and I'm disastrous and I'm brokenhearted I think we kind of like the refreshing kind of nut up yours attitude of that song you keep saying you've got something for me something you call love but confess You've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Yeah You keep lying when you ought to be true then And you keep losing when you ought to not bet You keep saying when you ought to be a chain pin Now what's right is right, but you ain't been right yet These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you You keep playing where you shouldn't be playing And you keep thinking that you'll never get burned just found me a brand new box of matches, yeah And what he knows you ain't had time to learn These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Are you ready, Boots? Start walking. Nancy Sinatra from the 60s, one of the classics that is These Boots Are Made For Walking, brought in today to Out of the Box and the FBI Radio Studio by my guest, uh, public commentator, Jane Caro. Jane, tell me about meeting your husband Ralph in in the seventies. <laughs> well, I first met him at a at a friend's party, and uh, she'd been telling me about this golden couple, Ralph and Nikki, and how gorgeous they were. And you know, I think it was a seventeen year old seventeen birth seventeenth birthday party, and um, down the driveway roared this motorbike Honda four, and uh, in they came this. God and goddesses, goddess. She looked a bit like Marilyn Monroe, this blonde hair, you know, very gorgeous. 
he was like um, long blonde hair and, you know, radical bike. And he's, Raph's always been a very good looking man. And um, it was a really interesting situation because I was thinking, wow, look at these two. They're very posh because these friends all went to Abbotsley and Barker and I went to Forest High. So it was a kind of, um, I was the lower class state schoolie anyway. Um, and I was a bit sort of bedazzled by them. They were very glamorous. But um he sat down and I saw his helmet, he took his motorcycle helmet off and on the back he had a sticker and this would have been about 72 just after Whitlam got in and there was a scandal that happened back then where to get rid of the DLP, um, Gough Whitlam offered Vince Gare, the head of the DLP, um, the uh, ambassadorship to Ireland because he was very Catholic and Gare took it and that freed up a seat for the ALP over the Catholic and Conservative DLP. And Ralph, coming from a posh private school background, had on his the back of his helmet this sticker which said, um, Gare to Dublin, Whitlam to Blazers. And I looked at him and I said, oh, get off the grass. How can you be a big radical bikey and have an incredibly conservative, you know, right-wing sticker on the back of your helmet? An anti-Whitlamist at the time yeah. when there was anything but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, we had this big kind of political argument. But what was great about it was that usually when I had political argument with arguments with boys back then, there was this attitude as if girls weren't supposed to, you know, you were supposed to, you know, reflect themselves back to themselves at twice their natural size and back their eyelids and say, oh, you're so clever, I never thought about that. And I was never that kind of girl. And um, if I did argue with boys, they'd get really huffy and kind of insulted. Ralph didn't. He loved it. I could see it in his eyes. He was really enjoying it. He was having fun. And so we got on really well, but I didn't think anything more of it. I thought he was way out of my league. I always had a fairly realistic idea of the kind of guys I was likely to attract, and he was just way better looking than any guy I ever, you know, even imagined. He'd go out with people glamorous like Nikki, not me. And then some years later, we met again and we were good friends and I was going out with a good friend of his and then, you know, that broke up and then Ralph used to come and see me a lot and I think my mother liked him quite a lot. By this time, his politics had vastly improved. And um, <laughs> my mother said to me one day, she said, mm, Jane, do you think Ralph might like you? And I said, oh, yeah, we're really great friends. And she said, no, 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 I mean more than as a friend. I went, oh, no. She said, well, a boy doesn't come to see a girl every night of the week. And I thought, oh, actually, that's true. He does come to see me every night of the week. I was at uni by this stage. So it was his 21st birthday. And I remember, oh, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I just said to him, oh, it's your 21st. I guess you can't really leave until I give you a birthday kiss. That was the start of it. So that would have been 1975, probably. November. Well, what was the radical decision that you and Ralph made pretty soon after you got together? <laughs> well, we'd already decided that we'd share a house with another friend of ours and we managed to um, get the only, what we call the only slum in Kalara, which was this um, dreadful falling down old weatherboard house in Bruce Avenue, Kalara. It doesn't exist anymore. For $9 a week between us. I mean, it was probably about 20 something dollars between the three of us nine dollars even with inflation it's even unthinkable. unthinkable but it was pretty grotty it had an outdoor toilet through a weed infested you know back garden and um it, it was a pretty uh, let me tell you it was a very down at heel place um we didn't have any money and then i when we sort of decided we were an item we decided we'd still move in together so um my parents who were always very progressive my mother said well 
that's okay, but you're at uni and he's working and I don't want you to be financially dependent on him. So I had a part-time job, so that was great. But she and my father paid me, I remember, about $30 a week so that I would be financially independent because she said it's important that you don't feel you have to be with this man if you don't want to be. Wow. Mm. With all the excitement that came from that and I'm sure everything else that was going on in your life at a radically changing Australian social climate, were you were you content on the inside in your 20s? No, not at all. Um, I, I developed an anxiety neurosis um, when I was 20. Um, just as I started to get to the point of leaving uni, I had an inkling that there might be something not quite right when I finished high school and I went on a trip with um, two friends of mine, we were doing a, you know, go around Australia Day in youth hostels and I just developed this, what I called homesickness. I just was miserable the whole time. Um, and I hated myself for it because I felt like such a drag on my friends. You know, what a downer. I was always weepy and hating it, wanting to go home and just really, really um, feeling horrible and I didn't understand it at all. And then when I went to uni, moved in with Ralph, it was all fine. And I thought, oh, whatever that was, it's gone away. But it hadn't. It was a warning of something. And then I um, was about to finish uni and I started to get these really horrible, intrusive thoughts. Um, it's OCD, which I think probably runs in my family, obsessive compulsive disorder. I didn't have the compulsions, just these intrusive thoughts of that I would do something horrible or violent to somebody. So if I was on a train station and it was crowded, I'd think, oh, God, don't push anyone to the train. I mean, I was really tiny. I was like five foot tall and 45 kilos. It would have been like being attacked by a kitten. But nevertheless, um, these thoughts were always in my head. I was eternally vigilant. I was like holding myself back from any minute now if I release this vigilance, you know, something terrible would happen. And this just went on and on and I saw psychiatrists of various kinds and I saw all sorts of people. And along the way of seeing all those psychiatrists and things, I actually learnt a whole lot of really, really useful stuff that I had not learnt. How did you unpack it psychologically? What, what did you discover about yourself and particularly the cause of, of, of the, that very unique sort of anxiety? It's not particularly unique. I found out later that it's actually that a lot of people do suffer from this. Um, it's quite well known in the literature. And um, it, it, it's often suffered, and, you know, I'm sure I was a pretty good example of by very conscientious, like really high, like with big, big sort of sense of responsibility, um, eager to please, kind of trying to be the best person they can be people. Um, and so their worst fear is that they will be the opposite of that and that somewhere in them there's this monster that they've got to keep under control. And for me... The operative word was control. I had to control everything and control myself. And I would spend my time um, disastrous, you know, catastrophizing. So I would think about the worst thing that could possibly happen. And then I would think, oh, my God, I mustn't think about that because if I think about it, maybe I'll make it happen, which is ridiculous. I didn't have the power to make the plane crash or any of those things. Um, and so I, I didn't understand it at all. I, I had no insight into, into it. I knew that it was absurd. I knew that it was completely ridiculous. But the fact that I knew that made no difference to the level of emotional distress that it gave me. Um, I didn't take any medication for it, although I was prescribed medication, but I just thought I don't want to go down that route. Um, so I suffered through it. And I learnt 
amazing things about things like where I stopped and other people started and how to how to work out whose problem something was. Was this really my problem? Was it somebody else's problem? All really good stuff, but none of it got to the core um, issue, I think, that the healthiest, I now think that that anxiety neurosis was the healthiest part of me. And what it was doing was it was saying, you're trying to be the sort of person that you think everybody wants you to be. Actually, you need to be yourself. So I'm going to keep nagging at you and nagging at you and scaring you and making you feel like shit until you come to terms with this and face what it is you need to face before you can become um, more completely yourself. What did being completely yourself mean? It meant learning basically... Well, it meant accepting vulnerability. It meant accepting frailty and weakness and that I could not uh, keep myself or everybody else or anybody I loved safe, that safety was an illusion, dangerous reality, um, you know, that I am a particularly, I have a strong personality. Um, I'm never going to be approved of by everybody. Um, I'm not. I'm not immediately likable to a lot of people, um, and that all those things were fine. I didn't have to become the sort of person that everyone approved of. I didn't have to be able to keep everyone around me safe. I didn't have to worry about something hap- that could happen in a futile attempt to try to stop it happening. It wasn't my business. If it happened, I would deal with it when it happened. It was no good me pre disastering it. I had to learn where I stopped and the rest of the world began. So it was about boundaries and recognising my own um, limitations, I think, more than anything else. What can we play to this, Shane Cairo? What can we play to your early 20s and finding yourself? I actually think um, a um, Led Zeppelin song, When the Levee Breaks, because I love that song. I love Led Zeppelin. And Led Zeppelin is the first I went. I, it's funny when you get older, you suddenly realise you went to these things that were just normal at the time but are now iconic. So I went to the 1972 Led Zeppelin concert when I was 14 um, at the um, Sydney, Sydney um, Cricket, Cricket Ground, Ground. Yeah. yeah, which now there's photo exhibitions about. I was in the audience, my first <laughs> ever um, rock concert. And um, so I've always loved Led Zeppelin. And this particular song, When the Levee Breaks, because I think that's what my fear was, that the levee would break and that I would just flow out like in a way I would just flow out and disappear that was kind of this weird feeling that I had and then I eventually realized that um if the levee broke you just fix it
it kicks hard, that rock and roll, when the levee breaks. Thank you very much to Led Zeppelin for recording that particular track in the early 70s. And thank you very much, uh, Jang Caro, for bringing it into FBI Radio today. This show, live on your radio and on podcast, is out of the box. Jane, um... Was there a standard path to advertising in the late 70s? No. Particularly for women, it was almost impossible. Um, Once again, it was my privilege that got me um, a chance. How did you hack in? Because my dad uh, worked in marketing and at one point was, in fact, the biggest single... I'm in control of the biggest single advertising budget in Australia. Like He was the client on things like um, uh, Uncle Sam deodorant, Aeroguard, Do You Have a Good Weekend, Mortine. Um, he was also the client on Come on Aussie, Come On uh, when he was the managing director of World Series Cricket. So he was a really well-known um, advertising man um, and his last name happened to be Caro and so was mine. It wasn't Smith, so that was helpful. And um, so I went looking for jobs basically in advertising and because of who my dad was, I got an interview and I got in. But I didn't initially get into creative, which is where I ended up. I got into account service and that's all about um, admin and organisation and all that sort of stuff that I'm useless at. So I was like the world's worst account executive. Um, but I was very fortunate in that. And I'm sure it's partly, it's a lot to do with my last name. I managed to get some luminaries in the industry like, um, oh, God, Bryce Courtney was one. Um, Peter Carey was another um, who kind of helped me to get a break as a creative. And there were very few women in creative. Um, And indeed, there were very few jobs for anyone going into a creative copywriter's job um, untried because I got in now there's a training scheme called award school which could you know young people have to do before they'll get a break into advertising I uh, got in just before that came in I'm always eternally grateful because I'm quite sure if I'd had that level of competition I would never have got a break so thank god <laughs> kind of a, a gilded age for Australian advertising at it least was. how bad was the sexism very bad. The what did it look like? Oh, it could look very nasty. Not to me. I think there's something about being outspoken that is protective. I think there's something about being an out feminist. So I was always always identified as a feminist, always said I was a feminist, um, and I think that scared them, so they didn't do it to me. And I think, to be honest, my dad was well-known in the industry and that also gave me a protection and... I was with the man that eventually I was going to marry, so I belonged to another man. I mean, it's awful, but I think those things all had an effect. Um, But I saw it happen and I heard it happen. I mean, there were terrible things that were done, like, you know, there'd be these parties and young women would get very drunk and, you know, I remember one party where they put... I wasn't at the party, heard about it afterwards. They took off her knickers and put her on the photocopying machine and you know, photocopied her genitals and put them on everyone's desk in the morning. I mean, this is appallingly awful behaviour that was laughed at, you know. It's just so... And there was this idea, it was a very strong idea in the 70s and 80s in Australia that if you were successful in your field as a man, so if you made a lot of money for somebody or you were winning lots of awards as a creative or you were, you know, in some way considered a success, had your own TV show, were a champion racing driver, whatever it was... You had the right to all the things, and those things included the pretty girls. 
So you had to write to consume them, to consume all the alcohol, the drugs, the food, the restaurants, um, the fame, but also the sex um, that that was there. And I noticed too that the girls who had some sort of previous damage, uh, I don't know whether it's sexual or what it was, were often the ones that were targeted. The, the predatory men could sniff out weakness and that's what they went for. Was the industry already doused in cocaine oh, yeah. as the stereotype oh, yeah. uh, would it have it today? Utterly doused in cocaine. <laughs> did, did you tibble? No, I didn't. I've always been really straight. Um, I, I've always been very radical, like politically and with opinions and what I thought and my views of the world. I didn't follow the crowd in that. And so, oddly enough, I think it's the same thing. Because I didn't follow the crowd in it, in that, I didn't follow the crowd in other things as well. Now, I, I'm... I love a good glass of wine, probably way more than I should, but I really love a good glass of wine. My husband, indeed, is in the wine industry and has been for a very long time. But um, illicit drugs I never liked. And the reason was that I think it was also my anxiety neurosis that protected me because when I was at Forest High, dope was huge. You know, everyone was smoking marijuana. And I didn't really want to. And then I felt very uncool and very straight and, you know, a dag for not doing it. But then uh, some friends said, oh, we're going to get you stoned. And so they, you know, worked really hard. And I did get stoned. But all I felt was absolutely awful anxiety, like really, really, really terrible anxiety. And I didn't have any fun at all. I hated it. And so in a really funny way, they did me a huge favour because that turned me off the idea of doing any kind of illicit drugs. It didn't make me feel good. It made me feel bad. Wine, on the other hand, makes me feel good. Well, pour yourself a glass of wine, listener, because let's go for another uh, track now, Jane Caro. What do we want to play for advertising? Well, um, I wondered about playing Suffragette City, actually. This is partly because it was the song that my husband and I always danced to and still do, Daggy yells 62 and 65-year-olds that we are. If Suffragette City comes on, we're on the dance floor. And I think it's because it's such an interesting song in terms of, you know, suffragettes. So it's about women and it's about forceful women. But it's also got that little thing at the end, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you know. So there's this real dichotomy between the struggle for women to be taken seriously as, you know, thinking, feeling human beings and yet still being seen as a kind of commodity to be used up um and i think that's where advertising was at that time it would pay lip service to the idea of women's equality but actually it still saw women and i think we're still there i think women have come a really long way i think women have changed beyond recognition since i was a girl and even when i was in advertising in the 80s where most women told me they weren't feminists and you know why didn't i just conform blah, 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 blah. all those women are feminists now i'd like to say um and um, but men haven't. Men are still stuck. They're still wanting us to go back to the way we were. Obviously, hashtag not all men. But as a as a gender, they have have not done the changing that women have done, and that's what we need to see next. So maybe we need a real suffragette city.
classic rock and roll track now and maybe a call to arms. That is Suffragette City. David Bowie, of course, uh, brought into FBI Radio today by Jane Ca- uh, Caro, uh, the public commentator, education advocate, other things, is my guest on Out of the Box today. Your first daughter, Polly Jane, was born uh, about five weeks premature. Mm. Did the doctors identify any problems no she was fine at first um too fine really because that's they put her into a um instead of putting her into a humidity crypt they put her in a uh, just a special care nursery which was open and um while she was there she'd get jaundiced and go under lights for a while and that kind of thing but um she was released um after a few days they said oh she's fine but I, as soon as i got her home i knew there was something wrong and um I saw this snot come running out of her nose. She was very little. She was only like two and a half kilos. And um, uh, we took her back to the hospital. And, uh, you know, I was thinking I was being paranoid, but it was a Sunday and in those days very few doctor's offices were open. So if you wanted to get medical care, you did go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and um, as soon as I saw the doctor look at her, I thought, oh, he's going to admit her. My husband said, oh, don't be ridiculous, she's being paranoid. But no, the doctor came back and said, we're going to admit her. And she picked up this infection, which is still the biggest killer of babies under one, and you can't vaccinate against it, and it is particularly dangerous for premature babies. And that is RSV positive bronchiolitis. And um, highly, highly infectious. She was born, unfortunately, at the beginning of winter when it's at its worst. And so um, we had this horrendous week in um, the baby's ward at Camperdown Children's Hospital, which was then where you went. doesn't exist anymore now, of course. And, um, you know, just awful monitors going off. And, you know, I'm trying to breastfeed this brand-new baby, tiny little thing, losing weight furiously. And people would say to me, how many minutes... I'd never breastfed a baby. I didn't know how many minutes. Like, there's no valve on your boobs that tells you how much milk they've had. You know, and I, now I realise she wasn't getting anything at all um, because it was just a flutter, you know, that I'd feel. And one particular night, um, I was trying to feed her again. And they tube-fed her, that's right, they tube-fed her because I think they realised that she wasn't getting much. And... Um, I said, shall I try and breastfeed her again? Because I knew if she breastfed properly that she was getting better. And she had this big red mark from the Band-Aid that had held the tube on her face. She was allergic to Band-Aids, which is what saved her life, actually. And I said to the sister who was, well, the nurse who was sort of helping me, what's this red mark on her face? And she said, oh, I don't know, I'll get the charge, sister. Um, And the charge sister came over and took one look at Polly and said, he handed to me... And I passed her over because she's got a funny purpley colour. And this charge sister turned her over onto her stomach, put her head between her thumb and her finger, her first finger. That's how small she was. Started hitting her on the back and going, come on, come on, come on. I knew exactly what had happened because um, a, a relative's daughter had uh, not breathed, had failed to breathe for quite a long time after being born. And um, uh, she'd told me the same story about how they'd hit her on the back and gone, come on, come on. So I knew that she'd stopped breathing and I knew that was the worst thing that could happen. And um, I remember I got off my chair and sat on the floor and then they came out, a doctor came out, there was all these people, they pressed buttons and people came from everywhere. And um, then somebody came out of the kind of cluster of nurses and doctors and said, oh, look, it's the worst, but we've got a breathing. And then they went doctor and he went back in and I knew she'd stop breathing again. So I I got on the floor and it was a weird instinct. I got on the floor and there was a pot plant in the corner of just behind me and I went and I 
I went behind between the corner and the poplar. I wasn't hysterical. I wasn't screaming or crying. I was quite cool and calm. But I needed, I just had this instinct, which was I need to be where I can't fall and I need to have something behind me and in front of me. It was weird. It was like just this absolute instinct. And so I just, because of all the work I'd done with my anxiety neurosis, I thought, go with the instinct. Don't fight it. That's what you want to do. Go do it. Who cares what anyone else thinks? Your baby's dying. Go do what you need to do. My husband arrived in the middle of all this and realised what was going on. And he said to me, come out, come out. I said, do I want to come out? And he said, no, well, come out for me then. So I thought, oh, all right. <laughs> I came out then. I never forget that instinct of trying to make myself protected. Um, and then they um, they had to come. They, somebody came and had a look at her and um, they had to decide whether they would put her in um, what was called lower Todman intensive care because they had one neonatal intensive care bed uh, available in New South Wales that night and they judged her the sickest baby and so she got it and she was intubated three times they had to do it three times because she kept stopping breathing and you know all of this and um, it was incredibly um, traumatic and terrifying and she was only 13 days old and um, tiny little tiny tiny they put her on a full-size bed you know teensy and um, uh, the next morning I got up, I was staying at the hospital, sleeping on the couch in the best breastfeeding room. And um, again, because of the anxiety neurosis, um, it had taught me, seek help. If you need help, go ask for it. So I rang this woman, Juju Sundin, who I'd done these pre-natal exercise classes with, and I liked her, and I told her the story. And she said, right, get in touch with um, Peter Barr. He's a friend of mine. He's a neonatologist. He'll be at the hospital. Um, he's also a grief counsellor. Um, call him now. Tell him I told you to call him so I did I rang him and he said right I'll meet you in the coffee shop in five minutes um and I went in the coffee shop and I think now looking back on it that obviously what had happened that night was all over the hospital like they freaked out because she nearly died and I don't think it should have got to that point to be honest with you but anyway and so it was all over the hospital because he knew exactly who I was even though we'd never met and he walked up to me and it's so profound for me may not be profound for anyone else, but it was very profound for me, the three sentences that he said to me, because they gave me the key, which eventually led to me unlocking and really recovering from my anxiety neurosis. I am so not anxious now that some people may argue quite rightly that I may have overcorrected. Um, but this was the key. These three sentences were the key for me in unlocking it. The first was he walked up to me and he said, there's nothing special about you and there's nothing special about Polly. Terrible things can happen and they can happen to anyone. Safety is an illusion. Danger is reality. And I thought, I mean, it sounds brutal, doesn't it, to say that to somebody. Nothing special about you. This is just one of those things that happen. Terrible things can happen. It's happened to you and this is reality. You're up against reality. But it was like bricks had fallen off my shoulders because I was doing that magic thinking. Was it because I was in room 13? Is it because I did this? Is it because I had a drink before I knew I was pregnant? You know, all that stuff about how could I have controlled this and stopped it happening. And, of course, what I began to realise, thanks to him, was there was nothing I could do. These things can happen randomly. You can't keep yourself safe. There's nothing you can do but just go through life with your necessary illusion that the bad thing won't happen, and most of the time it doesn't, but with the recognition that it might. And if it does, 
deal with it at the time. There's no point in trying to anticipate it. No point in trying to think of every possible bad thing that could happen so that you can control it. You can't control it. Anything can happen. What became of Polly? Oh, Polly is uh, 32 years old now and she has two children of her own, neither of which had dramatic beginnings, thank goodness. And um, she's a teacher uh, and also uh, quite a successful writer and um, opinion piece and author. So, um, yeah, she's, she's, she's doing fine. What do we want to play now, Jane? How do we, how do we play that part <laughs> of the episode well, out? I'm going to go back to David Bowie, I think, um, and Heroes because... Not I wasn't a hero, but I think Dr. Barr was, Juju Sundan was, my husband was, the people who saved Polly's life was, and I think that, or were, and I think that um, Polly is also a hero. So, yeah, heroes.
Aren't we lucky, FBI Radio listener? That's David Bowie twice in one hour here. Don't don't thank me. Thank Jane Caro, the uh, commentator and writer, is my guest on this show and podcast out of the box for a few moments longer. Jane, I figured that we'd, we'd talk out with uh, maybe some commentary on education. Why, why is this your cause above all others? Why why is it, why have you landed on education? <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm more passionate about public education than I am about feminism and women's rights, and I think they're very much um, the same thing. I am passionate about people getting as an equal an opportunity to develop their full potential as possible. Um, and I can see two major areas, three really, in this country where we don't do it. The first is in our education system, and that to me is particularly shocking because that's the place we're supposed to do that and we actually do the opposite. And so that just seems criminal to me. And the other thing is with women, you know, it's perfectly clear from the percentages of women in every area you care to name um, that they're not represented according to their true potential and talent. The same for people of colour or people with a disability. Um, and to my mind, that is uh, stupid and unjust. And so it's my job to do what I can to draw attention to it and change it. Well, with that job, let's let's let you get back to it and finish out this uh, episode of Out of the Box. What do we What do we want to play out with, Jane? Oh, I think we have to play "Sisters Are Doing It for Themselves." It's a fabulous feminist anthem. It really explains um, itself. <laughs> explains <laughs> itself. With an end like that. Uh, as always, an enormous thank you to my producers, Rebecca Merrick, who did a hell of a lot of work for this show, and of course, Bree Jones as well. Jane Caro, thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box. It was a pleasure.
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.